0: This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with our third and final installment in the Israel Podcast Tour mini-series featuring pioneers in the area of special needs and inclusion. For those listening to this in real time on the release week, sorry it's a couple days late, this is what I refer to as my tax season in my campus job working with students at University of Maryland with the beginning of the semester, so I've been a little bit delayed in releasing, and next week with Rosh Hashanah coming up, we'll probably be off and then uh, jump back. With the next Israel podcast, very excited about the upcoming episodes, continuing to feature amazing areas of social action and kindness in Israel, although not particularly in the area of special needs anymore, moving in a different direction as we proceed along this slow release journey of the incredible interviews I was privileged to conduct during my time in the Holy Land. But now, without further ado, founder of Bait Izzy Shapiro, Naomi Stuchiner. We are here with Naomi Stuchiner in the beautiful city of Renana outside of Tel Aviv at the headquarters of Beit Izzy Shapiro, which is an amazing organization uh, dealing with children with
1: disabilities and many other different things which we're going to hear all about. How are you, Naomi? I'm great, thank you. I'm pleased to meet you and pleased to be here with you. Wonderful! Thank you for for joining
0: us and for welcoming me to this beautiful place, very picturesque town and a beautiful building. And uh, I really don't know much about your story or the the story of this organization. I I, I told you, and I'll tell the listeners. I learned about Izzy Shapiro, Bait Izzy Shapiro, because about two years ago I was at APAC at the major annual conference. And they did a, you know, they do spotlights at different times on different interesting and inspiring things that are going on in Israel. And this place, Beit Izzy Shapiro, was highlighted and it's honored there. And I saw a video about it, and I kind of filed it away in the back of my mind. And when I was doing this uh, this live podcast tour here in Israel, it was one of, the, uh, one of the places I really wanted to visit. So that's really the extent of what I know about the wow. organization, and certainly I know even less about your own personal story. So take it from the top, I hear maybe a South African accent, if I'm, if I'm accurate. Tell us a little bit about your own history.
1: Yeah, once a South African, always a South African. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I've been in Israel for the last uh, 48 years.
0: Goodness, um, and still you have that accent. And I
1: still have that accent. So you can, t- you and can take the
0: girl out of the bush, but you can't take the bush from the girl.
1: What can I tell you? <laughs> what can I tell you? And when I speak Hebrew, it gets, it gets even more more uh, serious. You pick, pick it up in, in one second. Wow. Um, I, I, I came on Aliyah, married an Israeli. He came to South Africa. Uh, on a, uh, on a, he said he came on a safari and I'm the Chaya that he took back with him. But <laughs> that, uh, that pretty much <laughs> what happened. We met in South Africa. And you have to be
0: married almost fifty years to say <laughs> such a <was> thing. <laughs> really,
1: yeah, I'm afraid he's been saying it for longer than that. So, <laughs> um, I, I guess uh, from from experience over the years he polishes that up very well. Um, I came on Aliyah as a young social worker. Uh, uh, without my family, my husband's family was here. And um, I guess I never in my wildest dreams imagined that I would ever um, become so much part of Israeli society and um, maybe have a role in in, in making a better world for so many people. And and thank God, I have the real, real schut, the real honor to be part of a very, very exciting time in Israel, but also an exciting uh, movement towards equal opportunities for people with disabilities within within Israel society. Beautiful. Um, so, uh, where it started... <laughs> well, before we get that, I want to get back a little okay. bit
0: more, just in your terms of your own childhood. Did you grow up with a, with a very active uh, Jewish uh, background? I know South Africa tends to be more traditional than you know maybe less assimilated than some of the other
1: diaspora communities what was your background like? yeah well i'm the youngest of three children i grew up in a very uh, Zionist and uh, Orthodox family. Johannesburg? Uh, or Jahan- Johannesburg, okay. very much Johannesburg. Okay. Uh, and um, with a lot of chesed in the family. My, my late father, Izzy Shapiro, mm. I'm very proud to be the daughter of both Izzy and Lucy Shapiro, because my mother was a real um, personality in her own right. And uh, I grew up uh, in, in Johannesburg within a a, a very traditional, caring, uh, involved community uh, family. So I, I finished a uh, Jewish day school in Johannesburg and uh, King David School and I went on to study social work at Witz University um, and uh, when I was already in my third year of social work met my husband he actually came to south africa as he said on a safari safari. (laughs) he was just touring was he like after the army or no 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 he was already he was working he was a travel agent at the time and it was at the time that olympic airways had an inaugural flight to south africa and a whole lot of travel agents came to south africa Ah, and to check it out and and to check it out and my sister happened to be on a year in Israel and she was working for Dizin House which is a very well-known travel agency in Israel and um, they came to give me a message from my sister and that was the time that I met my husband and um, I was happened to be coming to Israel a few weeks later everything was very much beshert you know wow. this happened to be and that happened to be and we met up and uh, well I was still a student and I, I wanted to finish my degree sure And we corresponded and traveled and saw each other over the the next two years, almost. Wow, long distance uh, relationship. Absolutely. Without email or FaceTime or. Without, (laughs) no, no, amazing. I can't even imagine how that happened. I remember being at work and getting a phone call from our our um, maid, it used to be called a maid right, at, and um, um, the helper in Africa, at the yes. house, and she'd say the the post has arrived and there's a letter from Israel. And I would actually leave my office, get into my car and drive the 15 minutes to to the house to pick up the letter and come back. And um, just a few years ago, I found this whole box. Of all these letters wow. that my husband and I had written to oh, each other, oh, isn't that other. wonderful? Um, and I, you know, I thought I need to go through them because uh, maybe some of them will be interesting for the next generation. <laughs> Do you maybe have seven <laughs> in the belt? <laughs> I have to work out which ones to take. Take a blacker redacting pen. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> Um, And that was my, my, it was very clear um, clear to me and to my family that I would make Aliyah. But I was the youngest of three children, and even though my family was seeing that they would eventually make Aliyah, um, I kind of made it a point and said, okay, I'm on my way, way got got married and came to live in Israel. And um, five years later, my brother came a year after that my sister came and a year after that my parents came that's wonderful and thank god we had this beautiful aliyah of all our family and um and the truth is that my dad in South Africa had been very involved. Uh, he had set up a program in Johannesburg, an in what was then a residential facility. I mean, still is, but, you know, it was an institution which is different to the way we look at things right, today. Right, right. And um, he set up this institution in Johannesburg for people who had different kinds of disabilities because he had a friend who had a child with a disability and there were no services. And in those days, um, it was, not, uh, uh, it was not feasible, it was not accepted that parents would bring up their children at home, the home within, right. the, within the family and within the community. So what would happen, and I, as a child, I remember growing up and in the middle of the night there would be a phone call and my dad would answer the phone and there would be somebody to say, a child has just been born, a lot of Down syndrome child, children in those days. And my dad would go and pick up the child from the nursing home and bring the child straight to the institution. Wow! Now that's so hard to imagine that in today. I can't. I can't even such imagine such an anachronism. That. Yeah. So, so, but in fact, I think having that knowledge was part of the impetus, the the striving for making it um, so clear that parents have not just the right, but we have the responsibility to yeah. help them to bring up their children at home within yeah. their family, within their community and That we have to make sure that there are the right facilities for them to be able to do that. Right. And um, at the back of my mind, I mean, I never thought about it then as a child, and certainly not when I was growing up. But when I when I was a social work student and I studied community work, I had a different philosophy, and I was kind of I think I was rather outspoken. You were rocking boats. Uh, I was bit. already rocking the boat <laughs> in, in, in South Africa. So when I came on ALIA. And I was a young social worker. Sure. And I started working actually in Shonata Tikva and that was at the time of the Black Panthers, the Black Panther movement, which was really also simultaneous to the the, the, the development of Shas, you know, and uh, Shas and being the Sphardic religious party, and that was when um, people, uh, you know, in underprivileged in the lower socioeconomic uh, neighbourhood of, of Tel Aviv were standing up for their rights. Yeah. That was the time when the late Ofra Khaza was the first time on the stage at the age of 14. She became a very, very famous, wonderful singer. And she was and from and one of these And dis- she was from Qunat Atikva. And that was right. the beginning and I was part of that process when she was you know she was wow. launching uh, she was being launched and she was kind of like a slum it was a slum area in area in, around in, in tel aviv south tel aviv yeah, tel aviv. yeah. Tel aviv. yeah. Um, and that's where i started my professional career in israel so nothing to do with special needs absolutely. really dealing with a more no. just a disadvantaged economically absolutely but, but it did have something it's funny how everything is connected because at that time Oron Amir, who was um, became a member of Keshe, she was the secretary of Naamat, which is the Histadrut women's organisation, mm. and um, she. Uh, we started off the first um, uh, summer camp for working mothers, oh. and Oron Amir later became the head of. She became the minister of welfare, I think, so, but she became. I think she was the Minister of Welfare, but she was also responsible later for what became another um, turning point for Betty Z Shapiro um, when we started working on developing community services when there was a long list of, um, she was the Director General of the Ministry of Welfare, she wasn't the the minister at the time, and then there was a long list of kids on a waiting list for out-of-home placements for institutions with disabilities because that's what parents were told. Yeah, You have a child, quickly register your child for an institution. Why
0: do you think that was? Was it a function of embarrassment
1: or was it that they just weren't equipped to deal with the child? I think that it was a combination of many things. Firstly, um, there was a lot of shame of having a child with a disability. Why?
0: I mean, just from today's context, it's so hard to understand. Was it that the parent had done something wrong? I mean, why would anybody think th- why would there be any reason
1: for shame well firstly shame is a very interesting you know uh, uh, issue shame comes from um, from attitudes in the community towards certain populations or certain issues uh, shame comes from an inner thing that i haven't succeeded I'm not good enough. I brought into the world a child who is not perfect. There's a little bit of a Jewish, uh, Jewish philosophy, guilt there. Jewish <laughs> guilt. You know, um, we want our children to be achievers. Right. And um, when you have a child or when you had a child today, I really believe um, that there's been a major change. But when when you have a child who is less than what your dream is, every parent wants a child to be. The, the healthy. Successful, and successful. Scholarly. And, and, and right, whatever. Cetera, right. So when a child with a disability is born, then there is a, a sense uh, of shame along maybe even a process of mourning. You're mourning the loss of the healthy child. And all these issues are very, very much part of the way we see the child and the family and the way that the family uh, is able to relate to a child with, with, with special needs. And that ability to relate well has got to do with the way the community relates. So when we created Beat Shapiro, I had all this history of, right. of activities and understanding and insights and understanding that I had small children. I wanted the best for my children and I wanted the right facilities, but I had a choice and parents with disabilities then didn't have a choice. And the only choice that they were given when we started was register your child for an institution because when the time comes he needs to be on that list and that for me was the most terrible thing and that's when oran amir was the director general of the ministry of welfare and i said this can't be we have to find an alternative and that's how bait easy became pioneers in the field of community services for people with disabilities.
0: Now in those days would parents have zero contact with
1: that child in an institution or would they go visit the child what was that relationship like? Well depending on where they the child. Okay. When, if the, if the child, or an older child, might have been an adolescent or even an adult, but let's say the pro, they're, all, they're all children, not because of their disability, right. but because we gave birth to children. Right. And um, I think that would be very dependent on a number of things. Some parents uh, had the luck of their child being institutionalised in a facility close to where they lived, so they had accessibility. Some parents had um, uh, bad luck because they never said to the parents, "Well, we'll look for somewhere close by." They would have on the north, in the so north, wherever there south, was an opening, there was an opening. And then there were those parents who said, "We can't see this. This is an embarrassment. This is a shame." And and some of those didn't have contact. But um, I would say that a large, I, I, I believe, I really believe, that every parent wants to be able to nurture their own child yeah. and wants to be assured that is a, a natural the natural way of parenting and that they want their child to be taken care of and they want the best for their child and if for some reason parents have to at some stage of the child's development place the child in an out-of-home, I like to call it an out-of-home place because it could be many options and they're good options today, you know, in different senses. And there's a warmer sound than institution, yeah that's for sure. Yeah, and uh, then, um, you know, then that should be a choice of the parents, right. it shouldn't be something that there's no choice because they, they're at their wit's end, there's nothing else that they could do. And maybe um, what, what I, I have to fast forward for one second, sure. and my fast forward is to say, we started off 38 years ago with 16 children. Today, bait is impacts in direct therapeutic and education programs. On over 8,000 children and adults a year wow. and in extensive other services which have got to do with community services and legislation and pro other programs we impact in Israel and abroad on about half a million people a year unbelievable now, so bet easy is uh, in Israel you know we, we, we can count about 30,000 people a year we impact on many different sure. levels so the direct care, the education, and the the, the 16 children who were in, you know, children with severe uh, intellectual disabilities. That program for the children became one of the first programs for children with intellectual disabilities, uh, which was a therapeutic rehab program in the community, and then more and more programs happened. Bait Gizzi became a kind of an, uh, uh, an engineer for change Um, because we had programs we were giving them on the highest standards and we not only did we provide the service for the child we provided for the families we understood that the families are an integral part of any child's life and 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 especially for kids with disabilities the family can deal can be empowered and not only be empowered because that's even patronizing today, I would say, if the families can be partnered in a way that they can feel that they are not alone, they've got the right services that they want for their children, then um, they can function better and the extended family functions better. And then the community becomes more amenable because we're dealing with parents who are no longer ashamed, the parents who can be advocates for their children. And we at Bait Easy, over the years, we developed services, direct services for the child, for the family, extended family groups of brothers and sisters for grandparents grandparents have a tough time when a, when they their, yeah, their, child their has dreams of uh, continuing yeah. the generations in a particular way and then let that, that also but also the sadness you have a double sadness one mm. for your own children and one for your grandchildren uh-huh, so uh-huh. so it's it's compounded when you're a grandparent you know mm. we want to, we we care about our grandchildren In a different way to the way we care about our children because we want to be so protective of the next generation you know and um so we have those services then we decided that in order to be able to provide good services we need to have good staff and not everybody wanted to get into the field of uh, intellectual disabilities when we started. So we started working with the, uh, the academia, the, the universities, to train professionals in the field of, uh, at, the, at the time it was in the field of intellectual disabilities, then it, it expanded and we, we formed coalitions with the universities and allegiances with universities. We decided that if we want to serve professionals and we want to provide cutting-edge services for the children, then we have to have a, a research research which would assess, you know, are the cutting edge programs that we're doing, are they being effective? Um, do you know, uh, is this the best way to do it? And slowly we were able to provide model services to test them out. And export them. And export them. And the export model that made Easy has a, is a very, very strong model. Wow. The other part of it, the last part of it is the community. We say, we say to parents, we want you to look after your children to take care like every other parent. Your children within the community. Therefore, we have to have a community that is accepting, that is knowledgeable, that is not afraid, and that will include children with disabilities. So, we became part of an education program from children in nursery schools. We developed uh, programs for kids in junior high. We developed programs of inclusion. Our beautiful facility, and you're seeing one part of it is a really a world-class facility but it has a unique program of having direct therapeutic services you there, there's a school the nursery schools there's a school there's the first the first hydrotherapy center for all kinds of disabilities we have an international training center hydrotherapy center we have dental treatment dental clinic within this facility we have the sports state of the art sports facility so what we're saying is that the child any child has a need during his growing years to have uh, good educational services and good um, support services and social activities and if necessary, therapeutic services. Uh, Parents who feel that it's okay, that they are not on their own. So we have support services for families and we have a range of services on different levels so that the whole issue, and my dad had a vision, my dad had a vision of change and of equal, facilities and equal opportunities for all children and that's the way that you provide it that you work on different levels wow
0: so we fast forwarded it let's rewind um, so we'll again okay. um, how did, how did okay. the whole thing you know how is it all born you're I and mean, then you're here in israel and eventually your whole family was here yeah. where did everyone move to, to Ranana.
1: everyone was in Ranana from the I, beginning no i was in tel aviv okay. my husband and i were in tel aviv and his and family was from tel aviv his as well? family were from tel aviv yeah and uh, we lived in Tel Aviv for the first five years. And then my parents came on Aliyah and we bought in Ranana and we all moved to Ranana. So we've been in Ranana for a long, long time. And so your whole family ended up in Ranana? Our whole family ran Siblings and everything. My brother then moved to Kesaria, but the whole family ended up at the beginning in Ranana. Okay, it started my out sister, that way. My sister still
0: lives in Ranana. And yeah. for the first few years, you, like you said, you were working as just a regular social worker with disadvantaged youth in the south of Tel Aviv. How did you then move into this field of special education and and children with disabilities? And in particular, you've mentioned many times your father, after whom this facility is named. What was his role in all of this? Was he the one who who launched this project, or was it you in his name
1: or in his memory? What was kind of the whole genesis of that uh, experience? you, You just said it. He died. He died before he realized his dream. He realized his dream for Aliyah, for coming to Israel and having his children in Israel. And he relished every moment. Mm. He loved, loved, loved being in Israel. He forgave things that nobody else would forgive. He used to walk around proud to be living in Ranana And and he was wonderful. He just loved it. Then my mom and my dad went on a trip overseas and they were going to already have an idea about setting up a program in Israel. And had he done this professionally? No, no. He was a volunteer. What was his profession? They, what was his work? By profession, he was a lawyer, okay. but he was in business. He left the law, he he, he stopped practicing law, and he went into business, and after I made Aliyah, my brother and my sister, they made, uh, my parents made Aliyah. Sold his business? He sold, he he had partners, he sold out his part, and he came on Aliyah. And what was he, was
0: he retired when he he got here? He was retired. Retired? He
1: he came on Aliyah at the age of 62. Ah. He went on a trip at the age of 65 to to America. He was in New York for two weeks, and got onto a plane, and on the plane from New York to L.A. he had a heart attack and he died and he was 65 years old he was in the prime of his life he was so so uh, uh, excited about being able to do something he started to plan a a facility in Israel but the facility that he planned was really a similar facility to what he had done in in South Africa. More of an
0: institution.
1: He wanted to help families who wanted to make Aliyah with children with disabilities ah. to be able to have a place to come to in Israel,
0: and was there any institutions at that time
1: they in were, Israel? Israel was full of residential facilities. That's the whole the, the whole philosophy in Israel right. was out of home placement. But it sounds like he was also
0: planning one like he, that. He
1: he had he wanted to help to, to, to make you know, to help families make aliyah. I he and I didn't agree on this, right. you know. But this was uh, this was his dream. And when he passed away, and we the family got together. I remember we all went for a weekend before Yamita was given away, and we sat together as a family and we said, "What do we do in his memory?" Now the truth is that before um, before that, we when we were sitting shiva, my cousins, the Trumps from Florida, they um, came to my, my, my father's late sister, my father's late sister was Celia Trump, and they came to the sh- to the shiva, and uh, Jo said. Your dad wanted to do a f- have a facility in Israel. Let's talk about it. And uh, I, you know, this was this whole thing was such a terrible shock. So sudden, yes. He, uh, you weren't ready was, for that. He was here ten minutes ago, and now he's no longer. we going to talk about how do we um, memorialize him? Memorialize him. And it, it was it was very hard. But I was already working in in the field in Israel. I get rather excited about all this, but I missed a, a beat. After Shvunata Tikva, I had the third and fourth twin boys of my children uh. and I left Tel Aviv University and I set up uh, the first community mental health program with the late Professor Sam Davidson of Shalvata Hospital and I was I was already creating new services in Israel and the first of many community mental health started in Ranana and I was the person who worked together with Professor Davidson so when my dad died I was in that job I worked for Kupat Holim. And I, and I worked for, for for Shavata Hospital, mental mental health institution. And I, and I left Kupat And when the family decided that that's what we wanted to do, after the first the shloshim of my father, the first month, we went to visit my original connections at the Ministry of Welfare, and said, "What are the needs? Because I'm a social worker. You have to ask, what are the needs? You create services because there are needs to create them for." And they said that there were a group of kids with severe intellectual disabilities with also severe behavioral problems. And those children needed to, they, we needed a program. So it was our first year, we decided. And they that weren't had, be
0: institutionalized, they, those they, children. They
1: wanted to prevent institutionalization. The government understood then that there had to be an alternative to... There was already a sense and awareness that Uh, something needed to change. Absolutely. But the issue about what was the way to do it was the question. The program that they suggested was a a program of behavioral modification. Mm. Now, I'm a social worker. I don't believe in behavioural modification as the way to, you know, to, to 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 help a child with disabilities. But I only discovered that a year later, <laughs> after we'd done it for a That's year, a <laughs> and, and we said, okay, you know, the year was up, and you know, and 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 we understood uh, that uh, this was not working, and that we were missing the most important component. We were focusing on the child's behaviour, instead of the child within the family and within the community, and that was the turning point. We started from the beginning, and we started developing this therapeutic program for the child and for the family. And, um, start and then, like then with the systems. With, 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 the, with the systems and with processes where we understood that the child cannot be, he, he's not in a vacuum. This is where we don't want to make the first alternative for a family out of home placement. We want the first alternatively. how do we support the family's natural desire to be able to give the child everything he needs while he's at home and and within the family realm. And that's what we did, and that's how we created. And by creating that first program, we created a new way of looking at kids with severe problems within the community. And we knew that it wasn't just the child; it was the family. And we needed—we knew that we had to provide, as I said, we had to provide the whole range of services mm-hmm. for the—the the, the focus on the child and the focus on the community and changing attitudes and training, yeah. as a whole—a uh, whole structure. And that's how the, the, that's how the change started in Israel, and Beit Izzi was um, very, very instrumental in leading that change. And those were the the early days. Um, alongside with that, as a non profit, we had to find funding. Right. How you well you had it sounds like this cousin of yours (laughs) was very (laughs) instrumental.
0: I mean I saw their name on the building. I think we're in the Trump wing, maybe right now. So Nothing to do with the current
1: president no, of the United States. These these are the real Trumps. Yes. <laughs> nothing, to do with, nothing to do with the, the these For are, better are the yeah. most uh, wonderful, most uh, philanthropic uh, Zionist, wonderful, wonderful family, uh, who I'm lucky to have as my family. Yes. And they accompanied us and have accompanied us on this journey right from the very beginning. Wow. And they really helped us to set up the funding infrastructure. At the beginning, it cost $1,000 a month for 16 children. It cost $16,000 a month. And we had some support from uh, a foundation um, that the government helped us with. uh, And then the rest we had to start fundraising. And the Trump family gave most of that money? the Trump family gave 50% of the money, and we had to find matching. And over the years and over the months and over the years, I realized that if we want to be able to provide these the services on the standard that we are um, you know, we are determined to provide then we have to start getting into the fundraising world. And I must admit um, the only thing that I knew about fundraising was what I, I had a vision of my dad. I remember it was the Six, the six Day War and they asked my dad to help to fund raise money for Israel. And we always used to see my dad talking and people putting their hands in both pockets the one pocket was to take out their tissue their handkerchief the other pocket was to take out their checkbook and that's how i knew how that combination because my dad died before i could ask him dad what do we he would have known he's been you know he's been he was the vision he was the he was the inspiration but he he was a real expert he used to he you know raised the money for his institution in south africa and um I didn't know how to do this, but I thought, I I reckoned, okay, and what, and I've learned over the years, (laughs) I became a fundraiser, kind of, and once I thought I was a social worker and then I became a director, and then I was things. what, what (laughs) what do you do? You have to raise the money. That's right. So I thought, well, I have to remember that this money isn't for me. That's the first thing. There are a couple of lessons I learned. I learned from my late dad that if you believe enough in something, then you can achieve it. And I learned from him that uh, you have to take risks and that you have to believe that you're going to, you're going to get there. And um, that all battles that you believe in are worth fighting for. And you have to have patience, but you have to have determination. And those lessons, which he never really sat me down any day to tell me all those things, but I understood that those are the things that, uh, that he, he really taught me in his own way, in his own example. And I started to go and raise money and I started to travel. To and the States or to South Africa? Started off the first time, I w- we, my brother went to South Africa because that was the first year and we reckoned that people would still want to donate in memory of my dad because right. he had been such a figure in the Johannesburg yeah. community. And that was true. That's how we set the, the cornerstone for the for the fundraising. And then I went to New York and I, the Trumps would lift up the phone and say, Hi, my cousins in the you know my cousins here. Would you be prepared to see her? And these were business associates of these theirs. These business or associates of them. What per, uh, what line of work were they in? Real estate? They, or? they were in real estate, and yeah. they were, yeah. They had uh, various businesses. Where and they're still in Florida? They're in f- they started off in New York, and then they moved to Florida, and then right. they had businesses in different parts. Where are they they're in Florida? They're uh, in uh, West Palm area. Uh, they, they were in Aventura. Oh, nice. You know, and sure. now they're Sunny Isles. Uh, you know, beautiful. Yeah, young Israel Sunny Isles. You know, the know. They used to No, no, they went to Williams Island. They built Williams Island. Ah, they had okay. their own Shul on Williams Island. Oh my goodness, wow. Absolutely, that's where we all the, the amazing events happened on Williams Island. And then they moved to to Sunny Island. Uh, they bought they built a, a, a major, major project, Aquilina. And uh, they're very, very involved in the community. And yeah. they're the ones who really helped me to develop BDZ Shapira. And I Incredible. used to travel. I used to hire a... A, um, a video machine. I used to schlep it in a, in a cab. We had a, d- a, a, a what do you what A do you VHS? Call it? It, sir. Yeah, and I used to put it into their, somebody's TV and, you know, and the thing out. that's the way that I used to, yeah. you know, the old days of yeah. fundraising, you know, how do you bring, how do you bring the message? And slowly we developed an infrastructure of fundraising where um, we raised 50% uh, of our budget we got the government to uh, to, to provide 25% of the budget. And the, the fundraising budget is a very, very big responsibility of ADZ Shapiro because as you develop new services and you, you try state-of-the-art programs and you develop new models, you've got to fund them with, uh, not with government funding. Government doesn't give funding for, for these kinds of... Uh, they want to uh, see uh, a proven product. They, they absolutely. So yeah. some You know as a non-profit we always took the initiative and we the model of answering the need first and then developing services trying them out researching them teaching them and then handing them over to the government and many laws were changed in israel as a result of these kinds of activities, a special ed law was one of the laws... Yeah, give an example, please. Well, first, I would say the most uh, critical example, I would say, is the early, early intervention law. And um, when we started, there were education special ed services for children from the age of three. I think they were actually from the age of five. Then the special ed law came into existence. And then, but there were no services for children under the age of three. And we knew that the early years were the most critical years. And we we worked on legislation together with Tamar Gushansky, who was a member of Knesset, and uh, they developed an early intervention uh, subcommittee of the of the Knesset, and uh, they took Beit Easy's model of early intervention, and and that's um, across all services. And this is, it, it's across all, uh, the early intervention for kids with with special with special needs, and that today is a, a law that they passed the law of early intervention. Beit easy hired a an attorney because we realized that legislation is critical you need to lobby. In, in, in order to be able to lobby and to help to bring about legislation. And um, we led a coalition of 50 nonprofits in Israel in the field of early intervention. Wow. And since then, many early intervention laws have taken place as a result of uh, you know, this lobby. What year was that? Oh, this is about, we started, I would say, about 15 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. Um, uh, I have to remember I, I kind of think that life stands still, but <laughs> I've been out of my executive roles. I'm no longer the executive director uh-huh. i'm the executive director from two thousand and six. I handed over to my deputy amazing Jean Judas uh, yes. you know, and uh, she became the executive director um and I have to remember that the years have, have to be added on, to, to <laughs> <laughs> I can't pretend that oh, maybe it, maybe it was 20 They've years ago, six. Remember, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure how many years ago that was, um, but uh, you know there are many many exciting things that are happening for people with disabilities, we have BED-Easy uh, developed the first inclusive university, we decided that people with different kinds of other disabilities or issues who would not normally be able to study at a general university have the right to to higher education and we have developed a program together with the uh, school of continuing education at Barryland and that became the first inclusive university and there are courses throughout the country now people with disabilities are able with intellectual and other disabilities yeah. are able to learn on campuses and they have modified programs but they you know, the nachas, the, the pride, I've been at these graduation ceremonies every year and I look at these parents and I look at these people and they are confident and they, one of them tells the story that they went to university and they were in the cafeteria and a neighbour of his came up to him and said, what are you doing here? And he said, the same as you. Oh, and nice. And this moment, you know, of pride that I can also be, and the neighbour knew him as person with a disability. uh, And here he is, is, uh, you know, studying. So, um, you know, there have been major changes in Israel. There's still a long way to go, Uh, you know. What's still still missing in the society? Well, um, firstly, I think that the issue we, we we've just had a big disappointment i would say in the special education uh, they just did, did what they call special education reform in israel we we, we worked for years and years for inclusion sure. where children who had mild developmental issues could be included or even kids with more severe developmental issues could be included in regular schools with right. assistance with sure. support uh, from uh, the ministry of education And um, this was where kids, we had kids who went back into, you know, into the regular school system um, and the ministry would provide the funding and everything. They changed the law now, despite uh, major protests and all sorts of uh, anger uh, from from the parents and they changed the law that parents <coughs> will have a choice, they think it's a good idea, parents will have a choice between special ed and regular ed. If, you go, if you've got a child with a disability and he needs that special treatment and attention and you don't want to give up on it, you need to put your child back into special ed. Mm-hmm. If you want your child to be included in regular ed, then there's just only a certain amount of funding available for each school. And some schools could have one child, and some schools could have 30 children with the same kind of packet uh, of, of hours or treatment hours, et cetera. So it's, in a way, it's going back. So we, we've got to fight that in oh, some just, way. That was just a
0: financial consideration uh, from the government? Well, Or is there ideological I, 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 I want to tell you, I
1: can't understand it, I must say. I can't understand it. I think that there was a financial consideration that they were putting a lot of extra money um, it was one of, the fi- one of the considerations. I think some of them really believe that this is good. You know, they try and convince us that, 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 that it's good, that it's progress, but really it's it's bringing us back and, uh, you know, I've, I felt rather disappointed. So what I'm just saying is that these kinds of things still happen. They're things that, you know, there will still be areas where people with disabilities are not given uh, equal un- uh, employment in Israel there's not equal opportunities for employment, People, there's not a minimum wage for people with disabilities. So we've still got a long way to go. You know, I think there's more awareness, I think that when there are protests there are a lot more supporters, people understand that this is very close to home. I think kids are brought up much more now than they had in the past with an understanding that there are kids whom they could the friend or who you know who may be siblings of other friends, and that they don't have to be afraid anymore it, there's a general change in the way people with disabilities are related to on the other hand, I think we're really in a situation where um there's still so much more to be done you know. And uh, organisations such as Bait Easy, we're, we're very much today on the cutting edge. Bait Easy, for many years, for quite, quite a number of years, we, you saw us at APAC, which was a biggie for us. That was my God, you know. Wow, they'd easier, I made easier. I'm going, Dad. <laughs> Are you looking at this one? You Eighteen thousand. I think you know, yes wonderful there was. supporting Jewish people. Cared, not only Jewish, uh, you know. And Jack there was Puppet a Trump was. there too, as
0: well. <laughs> <laughs> the other Trump, not <laughs> <there> your cousin.
1: <laughs> no, the the one that you went to. There was a Trump. There well, I think, that, I think, I that, think that. that's I think that's the one. But there was Spence. Uh, Spence. Uh, oh, no, Spence no, Tr- was, was there. My Pence, yeah. Spence. But Nikki Haley was there, and she was very. That's what she brought down the house. Yes, amazing, amazing, but. But. But uh, Beit Easy is also in the United Nations. We are consultants to um, ECOSOC, the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations, and Jean, our amazing Executive Director, is invited every year. This this year she was on five different panels uh, representing Israel in the field of disabilities. That's a real Kiddush Hashem, you know. It's like, when I think about, you know, the dream of being in Zionist and now carrying the flag of Medina t- Israel, you know, even to the United Nations in a, an area which is, there's consensus, you know, yeah. the, the consensus about, you know, disabilities. I mean, there may be issues of funding and da, but the, the issue of um, Israel having state of the art, the top, you know, being amongst the leaders, the world leaders in the field of disabilities, Diagnol, you know, my cup, my, my cup is overflowing. I, I, who ever would have thought? Yeah, in tech, in high tech, you know, we we have accelerators giving young people who choose to uh, to develop new new methodology, new new technology for people with disabilities to yeah. improve the lives of people. A social so entrepreneurship, total, yeah. It's a, it's a totally different world. Oh, it's you great. mentioned earlier that the the
0: organization is affecting half a million people worldwide. Yes. Not, you know, in Israel it's 30,000, 30, 8,000 okay. directly more, and yeah, more, So even. how how do you how quantify do, that we,
1: impact well, internationally? Is that through this UN it's work or Well, part of the UN, but I would also say through the legislation that we've helped to bring mm. about. And um our new, our new, you know, the new technology in we other impact. countries, though. In yeah, that, absolutely. Bates has also got an export. Uh, you, you spoke about exports. Right, right. We have an international program, a, a global development, professional development program. We've taught in China. We've taught in many South American countries. We've taught in America. We've had people coming here Teaching to learn some of our med- Prof- professionals. Yeah. We've helped to set up programs in different countries, something in South Africa, in various parts of the world and that's with Israel know-how. I mean, you know, at the end of the day we get back to our pride of being in Israel and being Israelis and Israel is advanced in so many fields but how wonderful that it's also advanced in the field of disabilities of providing the best possible services you know and solutions to people with disabilities Yeah, and um, but Izzy has got a, a serious role in that. Beautiful. And he's I'm watching like a sucker with a lot of <laughs> Now you're the, you're the <laughs> retiring grandmother.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, I noticed he's speaking about the international impact I noticed on the walls all over, including in this office, <laughs> pictures of Bill Clinton, <laughs> and it looks like a 25th anniversary <laughs> event yeah. in 2005, which I, I believe is still when you were executive director, <laughs> since you said till 2006, <laughs> uh, called the Silver Bowl. Tell me briefly uh, about that. That
1: that was a real that was a real coup. I would say you know they've been. Moments. Watershed moments. Watershed moments. Yes. That was another watershed moment for Bait Easy. Uh, we were looking to celebrate the 25th anniversary of, uh, of Bait Easy, and uh, one of our donors, I spoke to one of our donors, a wonderful man, Henry Zeman, and I said to him, What do we do? There's got to be something. He said, You've got to have a big personality. <laughs> so I said, Okay, how big? <laughs> so he said, Very big. So I said, What? Clinton Big? He said, <laughs> Clinton Big. I said, okay. And I went back. I thought, you know, he's crazy. I'm crazy. What am I talking about? And I phoned my cousin and I said, do you by any chance know the bull? He said, yes, I do. He said, he's coming for Rabin's 10th, the 10th anniversary of the... Of Assassination, the... yeah. So I said, wow. He's going to be in Israel anyway. Hey, he's going to be in Israel. Wow. Let's yeah. piggyback on that. And that's what we did. And how did you get him? Did you get through his people? He's friend of Clinton, is a friend donors. of all the donors, and da da da. Yeah. And it was all pulled together. And, and you don't have to pay him up. or uh, an appearance fee. Uh, I'm not saying anybody else <laughs> So he slipped I, a couple shackles in his I, pocket. <laughs> you know a little bit of Yiddish? A You pretend that you're not hearing. You don't know. You know. don't cost <laughs> us anything except we we created this. This was the Binyanei Mumma. We created uh, this amazing event. But we you made, made a gala had, out of it. A, a, amazing gala. He came to our gala and uh, he was fantastic. Oh, well, he's a wonderful speaker. He's a wonderful. Whatever speaker. you think about his politics, he's a wonderful um, speaker into anything yeah. else he was a wonderful speaker and he was before thought he was the ex-president the right. brief, he was, you still call him president sure you know, you know and he came and he the turning point for Bait Izzy was amongst the business community mm. if Bait Izzy could bring a Bill Clinton to an event then there must be something behind real gravitas yeah that's it and that was firstly uh, uh, there was only a select number of people they had to pay a select amount of money. They, those it was a high ticket, a high I mean, ticket you really... and we, we really maximized it, it uh, you know. And he when he stood on the stage, uh, you know, and it, they briefed him in the middle of the night before. And um, I, what I did, I, I made my presentation. I said, you know, when you during your tenure, this law was passed and this law you passed. And he got on the stage and he said, you know, at, for twenty minutes he spoke and he spoke about disabilities, and he spoke about his experiences with people who have disabilities, and he said, when you leave here, look in the mirror and say to yourself, is there anything else that I could have done today to improve the life of somebody with a disability? Wow. And what can I tell you? You know, whoever he that was a moment, you know. And I think, um, you know, there are those moments, there were those Bouchert moments of Bay, for for, for Daisy Shapiro. I think that the whole Bed-Easy story has got to do with a lot of shirt a lot of it was meant to be. You have to be able to move it in the right direction. You have to, you spoke about social entrepreneurship. Bed-Easy actually turned out to be a social entrepreneur organization, without me knowing about Decades it. before that was a buzzword. Yeah. yeah, but without me knowing about it, it. It, it turned out to be really because social entrepreneurship is you identify a disenfranchised population and you come up with a solution uh, to, to be able to support and, and to answer the, the needs and then you institutionalize, you bring this up, bring that over and make it part of the government policy. And in a way that would be it easy. We we developed we recognized the community and their needs and we developed solutions to the problems and we you know, gave it over to government, and we also scaled up. We're be- very, very involved today in looking at the services and how we can scale them up so that other places can pick them up, and 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 take them and run with them, and governments can ta- you know make changes and, and 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 facilitate change, and that's got to do with my dad's vision of change in Israel. You know that, and he. My God, he, he just wanted people with disabilities to be accepted with, you know, opportunities. But that's that was just a kind of a an underlying thing. He gave the inspiration for so much of, of for everything, actually, of what has happened in the messages in the, you know, that he gave, that's the message that we took and we just, you know, we multiplied it. Well, And it's um, it's a joy every day. It's a joy. I'm sitting in this office, and you can see this building was had been through many alterations. About to have another one, but when they moved me <coughs> from up from downstairs upstairs, I said on one condition: then I'll be able to see the kids coming to school every day. So they <laughs> made me a window. Yeah, it's it's a, like window. a window. Okay, the vantage point. You know, everything has got to be planned properly, right, even the way because that right. that's where the inspiration is. Sure, you know. Sure. The, the well it's it's very clear that you're inspired
0: and uh, that's the only way things work and uh, it sounds like it's clearly an inspiration from above from, from your father's influence and as you say basher, I feel a sense of having the privilege to just to sit in this office and learn about this amazing organization that I only stumbled across (laughs) because I was at an APAC conference. And uh, really, I wish you incredible success, Khan. continue to drive this enterprise forward uh, and changing the, the landscape for children with disabilities and really changing the world in the process. So Naomi Stuchiner, thank
1: you so, so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for giving me the opportunity.
0: This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at jewsyoushouldknow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's p P-A-T-R-E-O-N a t r e o n.com/jews you should know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.